I'm not going to do it in that voice. Hello, Secret Movie Clubbers. Welcome to Secret Movie Club Podcast 129. Today, we are talking about Frank Darabont's The Shawshank Redemption, starring Morgan Freeman and Tim Robbins, an adaptation of a novella by Stephen King called Rita Hayworth and The Shawshank Redemption in his 1982 book, Different Seasons. And we're also talking about other Stephen King cinematic adaptations uh, that are uh, not his horror movies, which is what he's most known for. Who is with us today? Hey, it's Daniel. Hey, it's me, Carl. Lloyd Cruz, the people's champion. Oh, America! You already know what time it is. Time for me to take a sip of this Coke. This episode of Secret Movie Club, the podcast, is sponsored by Coca-Cola. If only we were so lucky. Does Coke sponsor things? Oh, the Christmas. They sponsor Christmas. Does Coke sponsor? Was that a real question? I'm trying to think of a thing that I associate with Coke sponsoring, and all I can think about is the entire holiday of Christmas. Coke uh, sponsored the 20th and 21st century. And I'm Craig, founder and programmer of Secret Movie Club. As always, uh, you can find out about everything we do at secretmovieclub.com. You can write us a community at secretmovieclub.com. By the time you hear this, tonight we are in the final stretch of our John Ford season. We are doing one of the bangers, one of the all-time bangers, How Green Was My Valley. Ford actually won his second Best Director Academy Award for How Green Was My Valley. Ford is still, to this day, the most awarded director in the history of Hollywood. He won four Best Directors. He would go on to win another one for The Quiet Man. Oh, he won for, I'm sorry, this was his third award. He won back-to-back Best Directors because he also got it for The Grapes of Wrath. And we're showing Wee Willie Winky, his Shirley Temple movie, which I love. I think it's one of the great Fords. And then tomorrow in the day, we are doing Cheyenne Autumn, one of Ford's last pictures where he worked to correct what he felt was one of his most grievous cinematic sins. Uh, Cheyenne Autumn is the history of the 19th century really told from the point of view of Native Americans. Again, an incredibly forward movie made in 1964, decades before anyone would really tackle that topic with any kind of integrity and sincerity. In the evening, we have filmmaker Chad Hartigan with us, and we are showing three of his movies, uh, Martin Bonner, Morris from America, starring Craig Robinson. And actually, I'm honored to say that we're doing the theatrical premiere of his movie, Little Fish, which was a movie that he released during COVID that went straight to streaming. And we are showing a 35 millimeter print. And Mr. Hartigan will be with us for all three movies talking about, like Jim Cummings did, how he has crafted a career in a very rough environment the last 10 years, 15 years for independent cinema. And I'm really honored that we're going to have Mr. Hartigan. So please, if you're a filmmaker, and it's actually selling really well. So by the time you hear this, uh, it may be sold out, but I hope we have a few tickets left for you. All right, here we go. Moving on. The Shawshank Redemption is one of those movies that's fascinating. Shawshank was made in 1994, came out in 1994, released by Sony Columbia about a man named Andy Dufresne who is sentenced to life in prison for the crime and passion of murdering his wife and her lover, a golf pro. He maintains his innocence, but when he goes to this prison in the late 1940s, everybody there says they're innocent. And actually, the movie frames it in such a way that you're not completely sure if he's innocent or not. The movie is narrated by a lifer at that prison, a man named Red, played by Morgan Freeman in one of the first, but certainly not the last, movie or documentary where his narration almost certainly made the movie in part. Frank Darabont, this was his debut as writer-director. Rob Reiner had offered Darabont $3 million to just sell him the script so that he could direct it. Darabont knew he had a dynamite script, and he said, no, I've got to direct it. So Roger Deakins came on as cinematographer. Uh, Rob Reiner, to his credit, said, okay, we're going to fund this movie. Darabont would go on to make a really moving, emotional Hollywood, in the best sense of that word, neo-Hollywood movie, it, when it came out, though, they kept Stephen King's name off it because they felt that if they tried to sell it on Stephen King's name, people would want to, I guess, would come in expecting a horror movie. Now, in retrospect, many people feel that was a big mistake. Uh, they should have kept Stephen King's name on it to get people in theaters. It barely grossed back its budget when it was out in the theaters. It was nominated for a bunch of awards uh, when the Academy Awards came by, but it did not win any of them. It was the Forrest Gump year, and it was eclipsed by the Pulp Fiction year. It was eclipsed by other movies. But this thing happened that happened to a number of other movies, which is when it started showing up on cable, started showing up on pay cable and VHS and DVD and Blu-ray, everybody discovered the movie. And over time, like Big Lebowski, 
uh, like Hocus Pocus, weirdly, uh, like many other movies, is now one of the most beloved movies of that era. So much so that it was the number one movie on IMDb's rankings above Godfather and Seven Samurai and everything for the longest time. It still is. It's reclaimed it. And how many votes did it get? Like hundreds of thousands, right? It's had... 2.7 million ratings on IMDb. Yeah, so think about that. I mean, 2.7 million ratings. And it's a real testament to, really, in the end, I don't know what you want to call it, but the fickleness or the randomness of how a movie is received. I think it was just as likely that that movie could have been relegated to, oh, I don't know why that movie was never discovered. And yet it had an afterlife and now is a huge movie through the randomness and vicissitudes of fate and time. Well, I did. I think the most amount of homework any of us have ever done for the show people can dispute this which is that i last night read the entire novella which isn't that long it's king so it reads pretty well but it was still like 110 pages and that's why i was up till like 5 a.m last night thank you for doing that by the way because i read it 20 years ago 30 years ago so i have questions for you it's uh, and i rewatched the movie this weekend because i hadn't seen it in a long time it is really good it's one of those movies that I almost think its reputation as being the best movie ever kind of harms it a little bit. It's a very specific sort of like feel good movie in a weird way, despite being like a prison film. I think one of the reasons why it is so beloved is because it's easy to love. Like it's a movie that everyone can like. It's meant to be beloved. Even my dad, you know, my dad will not like a movie because they say the F word too many times. Not a joke, but he like loves this movie. I sort of guessed because he probably watched it on TNT where they edited the F words out and that might have helped but still it's really good i was watching it again and it's not my favorite movie but i was like man this is a good movie you know especially um that brooks sequence towards the middle which is largely engineered for the movie the brooks character exists in the book if people don't know brooks is a character in the movie who as a man who's been in the prison for like 50 years and he gets released as an old man and he doesn't really know how to live outside he's been as red says institutionalized and he ends up taking his own life because he doesn't know what to do and that's such like an incredibly moving sequence and the way it eventually it plays off and to red's final fate is so beautiful the cast is so good obviously the main characters but like everybody clancy brown william sadler who plays the warden bob gunton i really liked watching it again the way the movie uses voiceover because the main voiceover is from morgan freeman but they do some interesting like style choices here and there to give another character voiceover which is always like an interesting POV shift. Wait, wait, who else has voiceover in the movie? Brooks has voiceover. We get his suicide letter in voiceover. And we get Andy's letter towards the end of the movie. We get that in voiceover, which is interesting because the novella is actually written as if it's Red's like memoir which they don't really do in the movie. It's more just like abstract voiceover. But in the novella towards the end, you, you sort of realize that this is actually supposed to be read writing this down. Also, there's a newspaper at one point and it's the Daily Bugle, which blew my mind. I don't know what that's about. If that's like specifically they're just referencing Spider-Man or something. But yeah. The main things that are kind of different from the novel, the big things are just, there's a little more ambiguity in the novel in terms of like the way things end up. And there's a lot more uncertainty at the heart of it. Like we, we know a little bit more of Andy's plans at certain times in the novel. And in the movie, a lot of Andy's plans are presented as like a surprise to us. It's the Hitchcock bomb thing, if people know it, the idea of there being a bomb under a table. And if it just blows up without the audience knowing, that's a single big shock. And that's kind of how the movie does some of that stuff. Whereas in the book, Hitchcock talked about if the audience knows there's a bomb, then they're waiting and there's a lot of suspense. And there's a little bit in the book in the novella, there's certain things we know about. There's like a tension there because we know that they can go a little more wrong to a certain degree. Though also because of the frame of the novella being written as a memoir after the events, we do also know that it resolved okay kind of early on as well. I was also wrong. I was When I was watching the movie, there's a line where the warden says something about you'll disappear like a fart in the wind. And I was like, I bet Stephen King wrote that line. I was like, that sounds like such a King line to write. <laughs> And I was wrong and I was really mad because there's a lot of lines that are from the book. Like I would say like half of the dialogue in the movie is pulled almost directly from the book. What are some other interesting differences between the novel, the novella and the movie? 
or did Darabont actually do a pretty faithful adaptation? Honestly, other than, like I said, that kind of uncertainty, there's lots of little things. Like in the book, there's three different wardens over the period of time. And I think the period of time is a little longer. I think in the movie, it's about 20 years. In the novella, it's closer to 30 years. Most of the other inmate characters are kind of invented. Even the characters that are in the novella are definitely fleshed out more in the movie. The only inmates that are really prominent in the book and in the movie obviously are two leads. Brooks has a couple of scenes, and the guy who's raping Andy early in, in his time in prison is also in the novella. But like William Sadler, who plays Haywood in the movie, I think that was a character they probably invented because they were like, we need like a third main prisoner buddy. And I love William Sadler, my favorite Grim Reaper. And does the novella end with Red taking the trip, but not knowing what's going to happen? Yeah, the novella ends with Red like going down to Texas and not really sure what's going to happen. It ends about like 30 seconds before the movie ends because the movie we get their beachside embrace uh, in the distance but it's interesting because the novella it's from this short story collection called different season which is four different novellas and they're themed after the different seasons of the year yeah so shawshank is spring yeah it's hope springs eternal and hope is a big like recurring thing in the novel which they do kind of emphasize in the uh, in the movie Three of the four novellas have been adapted into movies. Two of them very famously. The third one is The Body, which was adapted as Stand By Me. And then the middle one, or one of the middle ones, the summer one is Apt Pupil, which was, I would say, less famously adapted. I don't know if people like that movie or not. I think probably not because I don't hear anybody ever talk about it. It's also probably the most disturbing of the four. Have you ever read it? I haven't read any of these. And so I have some other stuff, so I'll probably take a second, but I'll read this. And I don't, I, there's the fourth one, The Breathing Method, I've never even heard of. Yeah, they're all good. I, I actually think Different Seasons is one of his best. It's a, it, during that time when he's just on fire, you know, within a few years of the stand. And We had to read that for our screenwriting class, actually. They paired that with on writing as like a summer thing. On writing is so good. As both like an adaptation type of concept for the novellas, but also just someone in that exact thing, like on top of their game writing. And then you could look at obviously the scripts and the way that it was, I'm sorry, it was screenwriting adaptation class, but specifically how like why a short story is so ripe for adaptation, because it's got just enough to give you this visual ideas. And then you, if you're adapting something that's not your own work, how you can really sort of expound upon it with your voice too. Short stories and novellas and specifically like what I would call like airport procedural novels, detective books, but that's kind of a different thing, a procedural thing. But in terms of stories that aren't, procedural novellas and short stories feel like the perfect length for movies a lot of times they feel like paced kind of the same way like you can read a novella in about the same amount of time it would take you to read uh, watch a movie so they they have a kind of similar pacing whereas opposed to like a novel whenever you watch a, a movie again with the exception of i think more like procedural novels like detective action stories where it's like a single adventure those adapt well into movies but like story novels oftentimes feel squinched when they're movie-fied. One of my favorite Stephen King things is The Dark Tower. It's sort of like a darker fantasy thing, but it doesn't work for me on screen at all. I think that's such an interesting thing of sort of the reverse. Uh, it's not really a novella, so it's a different conversation, but sort of this very King writing, super lush fantasy. It's got, I think, traces of his horror stuff, but feels distinctly fantasy and different, but seems to just be a nightmare to try and moved to the screen it's been attempts for many 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 years and then it was done in like a bizarre thing that was like a 90 minute cut down that sort of combined most of the books together as like an action movie i love shawshank shawshank's so weird too because because of the status it has i think it's very easy to dismiss it as being this thing but every time i revisit it i'm, I'm very taken with it it checks all those boxes i think we often associate with like an oscar movie but it does them so well that i can't help but be like completely into it if that's fair it's very funny that it came out at the same time as Forrest Gump because it's a movie that I think does similar things that don't work for me. And Shawshank, it does. I think a lot of that's catered to the performances. Um, it's so overly sincere, but it never winks and it, it knows what it's doing. It's manipulating you at a great level that it doesn't make it feel like it's it's getting one up on you. It like kind of lets you know from the get-go that what this is going to be with its narration 
this sort of storytelling gimmick on top of it all that I find really effective. I think in a weird way, it's just like how genuine King and Darabont are in their storytelling. That's the success, I think. King is just a storyteller. Like, I mean, he's talked about this. He's had substance abuse issues. And back then he wrote a lot because he was high on cocaine. Um, And now he writes a lot because it's his addiction, essentially. He is addicted to writing almost pathologically. And which I think is part of what makes him such a good writer, because at the end of the day, if you write that much, eventually you're going to have to be good. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think it's one of those things where he was probably just sitting there and thinking about prison escapes and just like, I got to write this. Darabont is like the non-spooky Mike Flanagan in a weird way. And even he did some spooky stuff where he ha- seems to have this real basic core understanding of King on a very like un- uh, heightened level. Darabont did The Mist, <laughs> which has one of the most unsettling. Yeah. I-, I ended up backing off of that statement like immediately. <laughs> the-, the Mist has an ending even more brutal than the King short story it was based on. I don't think they've made the greatest King adaptations because I think the best adaptations are a little more transformative like the shining but i think they've found a really great way to channel king in ways that feel very pure and you watch the movies and you're like okay well i know why stephen king is a good storyteller and they've been able to translate it definitely darabont feels like he's more in the same lane as king because king is a warm writer i think famously the shining so put him off because and i don't like to describe it this way because i actually don't view kubrick this way but you could call it a cold movie in terms of how kubrick approaches the material and i think king is just inherently optimistic and warm. And if you've read the Shining novel, there is redemption in the novel, and none of that is in the movie. Yeah, he's he's David Lynchy in that way, sort of, where he Absolutely. has this darkness, but a wholesomeness at the same time. Absolutely. Yeah, humanism. Uh, I forgot I was even here. Um, <laughs> I was lost for a minute. Um, but uh, no, I love Shawshank Redemption. Uh, it's one of those movies I saw at my grandparents' house because they had cable. I was going through HBO or Cinemax, and it popped on, and uh, I just watched it. Uh, a Hollywood Book of Poster. Uh, the owner is actually friends with the storyboard artist who did the storyboard consultant on Shawshank. And uh, yeah, I talked to him a little about Shawshank, but I, I actually, uh, that wasn't the first way I thought of. The first way I went to is one of his earlier stuff called Renegades from uh, 1988 with uh, Kiefer Sutherland and uh, Lou Diane Phillips. It's a buddy cop action movie. And then, and then I went to Shawshank. Shawshank is probably the greatest movie ever made of the 90s. I don't know how the f- did it lose to Forrest Gump? I, I used to love Forrest Gump, but after reevaluating the movies I've seen, I think Shawshank should have been the movie to win Best Picture. Because that is the epic, not Forrest Gump. It's just Tom Hanks talking about a lot of crap. Those are two movies that are a study in. One movie was the cultural rage when it came out, Forrest Gump. But over time, it's receded. I taught her. How the exactly. Yeah, people don't talk about it that much other than to be like, ah, I, like, I don't watch that movie. That movie doesn't hold up that well. Well, I think its biggest cultural impact is the Bubba Gump Shrimp Company uh, chain of, of restaurants. That's true. I've never, I've never been. Uh, neither have I, but I've seen him. That's for sure. It's, it's fine. <laughs> I have. It's on a Monica Pier. But then Shawshank is an example of a movie that came out, you know, to muted response that has only grown. And then Pulp Fiction is the other thing, which was a movie that was a huge movie at its time and is still a huge movie in its afterlife. So it's funny that in that 1994 year, you had three examples of different lives, lives of, of cinema. Oh, look what he did. He ate. Uh, <sighs> sorry, I haven't, I haven't eaten breakfast. Uh, if we were all in prison, Edwin, who would you be? If we were all in prison in the Shawshank? Red. Who's Connor? I'm the guy who cries the first night and gets beaten by Clancy Brown and dies immediately. Connor. I, I, know, I know I'm that guy. I have no uh, illusions. Who's Daniel? Daniel's the warden. What? Daniel's the warden, 100%. No. Jeez. Okay. This is Connor. Who no. am I? Uh, Tim Robbins. I'm, I'm, I'm Andy Dufresne. All right. I didn't see that one coming. I thought you'd make me the warden and make Connor or Daniel no, Dufresne. No, 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 no. No, no. Daniel is, clearly looks like the warden because of the glasses and the well, hair. He may look like him, but he's not. Okay. The, that went off the no, still, still, still. I'm I'm Brooks, just so I can get out of Ed. I just want to not be involved with Edwin. No. <laughs> okay, I'm confused now. I'm befuddled by this casting. We're all confused. Uh, all right, that's true. Man, never a truer statement was made. I, I would actually say Edwin's the warden. No, no, God, no. Make it, he, spends, he makes us listen to his records. He demands things that are unreasonable. It's true. And he'd sell us down the river, too. He'd kill, like, somebody who could, like, help us. If it got in the way of his plans. Shawshank to me is one of those examples. And it's really hard. I, it's funny that you mentioned Forrest Gump because that helped me. I, it's not a movie that would have jumped to my head that I would call Neo Hollywood. 
and it's very hard for me to explain, but it's an idea of Hollywood filmmaking that actually never really existed. But in the 80s and 90s, there was this uh, neo-Hollywood filmmaking that was probably characterized by lush scores, emotional arcs, probably like Driving Miss Daisy, another movie that no one talks about anymore, would be like an example of that. Dances with Wolves. Which was this idea of Hollywood and Hollywood epicness and Hollywood sincerity and Hollywood magic that never, when you actually go back to Hollywood movies, was not quite what they had. Because actually a lot of Hollywood movies were unsentimental or a lot of Hollywood movies were very canny in what they were smuggling in. And for sure, there were sentimental Hollywood movies, but I don't know that they're the ones that we're talking about. Weirdly, I think in the same time period, Barton Fink came out, which was kind of like a anti-Hollywood like a response to that. Totally. Yeah. Which was the antithesis to that kind of movie making. Interestingly, though, Shawshank is the best example of a neo-Hollywood movie that really really works that I embrace. I get to now drop a quote that I never get to drop that I put to memory by James Joyce that I think is, is amazing where James Joyce said the sentimentalist is he who would enjoy a thing without paying the immense debtorship for a thing done. I think that that's why sentimentality curdles art. One of the only things I know, I pray to God that I'll be able to make movies and uh, get better because uh, I love storytelling and I love movie making. But I also pray to God right now openly that I never am a sentimentalist. I really, truly think that great art has to be unsentimental. I think it can be warm. I think it can be humanist. But I think the moment it gets sentimental, I just don't know that it's dealing with truth in the best possible way. I don't necessarily know that Shawshank gets sentimental but it's a kind of neo-Hollywoodism. Like I was talking to Alex Olivier who projected that. There are things that are not true in it that you can catch right away. There would not be that many noble prisoners in a prison. There would for sure be a lot of really scary folks. And yet you get this feeling that a lot of the prisoners are very noble and are there maybe for crimes that they shouldn't be there for. Then also too, the bad guys are bad. If you needed to know the warden was bad, you get him nodding to the head guard and they just straight up executed dude, which I don't even think you could do, but maybe you could back in those days. But you're like, oh, the warden, this guy's got to get his comeuppance and the head guard, this guy's got to get his comeuppance. There's just all this wish fulfillment stuff that continues in the movie to the very end, literally to where they get like a prison escape happens that's brilliantly engineered. And then Red gets out of prison and he meets up on the beaches of Mexico. And these guys like hoist a beer literally on a tropical beach, uh, having gotten out of prison. And in reality, the life of somebody who's an institutionalized prisoner and their mentality and their life after prison, it would be different. And yet, because of who Stephen King is, and because of Darabont's cinema and storytelling and Deacons and the talent of Morgan Freeman and Tim Robbins, there's a kind of narrative truth. Things do sometimes work out that way. Sometimes people do beat the system. When it's it's about hope. The, the integrity of the movie is it's about hope. Even if those aren't things that would necessarily be real, they fit the themes of the movie and the, the reality of the story it's telling. And hope is real. And, and I think that there's a psychological truth to all of us, despite how rough our lives are, things not working out, uh, many of us always hope. We never lose hope. So I think there's a power to the movie, a psychological, emotional power, that even if the narrative elements are neo-Hollywood, that the psychological, emotional elements are very true. And I, I think you nailed it, Connor. I mean, I love it. I love Shawshank. But. They do a good job also of introducing at least enough ambiguity where there's, you know, there's times, especially towards the middle of the movie, where like the head guard and the warden, you like a little more because you're seeing it from Andy and Red's point of view and their relationships kind of shift as the movie goes on. Yeah, no good point, which is true to life too. <laughs> you could have people that you have ambivalent relationships with that go north or south for whatever reasons and they reveal aspects of their character you weren't ready for. Let's go to the second part of this, Stephen King and his non-horror work because actually King has written so much 
one of my my favorite King novels of all time is one of his more recent ones, although now it's like 15, 20 years old. But it's his time travel JFK novel, 11, 20, 22, I think it's called. Whatever the day was that JFK was assassinated. It's a time travel novel. There are definitely aspects of what King does well in it, but it is not a horror novel by any stretch of the imagination. And King has done one of his more recent books, which I haven't read, is called Evanescence, which, as I understand it, is kind of a transcendent Frank Capra kind of thing in a small town. And he's done mystery novels and blah, 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 blah. So yeah, he has that Mr. Mercedes series. Totally. Yeah. And he's like obsessed with that character now, Holly Gibney. And there's an adaptation that I should probably watch. I feel like I actually haven't seen some of the more prominent. That's the homework I didn't do is I probably should have watched something because there's an adaptation of Mr. Mercedes, like a TV one with Brendan Gleeson as the lead character, which sounds kind of great. Uh, I'm so glad this is actually a real thing. Uh, <laughs> so the one non-horror Stephen King movie, and it's not Stand By Me, it's not The Green Mile. It's a 1987 action-packed throw ride, The Running Man. That's right. Thank God for that movie existing. Actually, it's a Stephen King novel, but he used the pseudonym uh, Richard, Richard Bachman. Bachman. Richard Bachman. Thank, thank you, Connor. Thank you. I got that. Thank you, Connor. Uh, anyway, yeah, I barely found out about this when I watched The Running Man, and someone told me this is a Stephen King movie, but as soon as the, based on the book by Richard Bachman, I thought it was Stephen King, like, like, oh, and then someone told me that's actually a pseudonym for, like, a novel he wrote under that name, which is pretty good, you know? I love The Running Man. It's not great. But, you know, it's decent. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot of great fun. I That's a movie I really have a soft spot for because my dad, it's a movie uh, my sister and I watched with my dad after the divorce. And we all loved it. We couldn't believe we're watching an R-rated Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. As cheesy as it is, it is a lot of fun. Like when Schwarzenegger takes on Sub-Zero. Oh, that was great. That's a great scene. I love that movie. You got to show it again, man. You got to show it to Running Man again. Oh, for sure. It'll it'll come it's back. It's badass. It is. Richard Dawson is the game show host. Yeah, who uh, who was the the what's that game show he actually Family did? Feud host Family Feud there you go before Steve Harvey but, uh, yeah you should check out the running but actually um Stand by Me is also like the best one of the non horror ones because uh, uh, the Richard Dreyfuss character who is telling the story and I thought about this he's ba- he's basically playing Stephen King that that's basically Stephen King writing the novel and something like that happened to King so there you go yeah that's that's the third section in this different seasons uh, collection Fall from Innocence the Body. And if people haven't seen Stand By Me, it's about a group of boys from troubled uh, homes of varying different degrees who hear that there's a dead body and they want to be the first to discover it. So they go on a, a one to two day trip to discover this body and a bunch of things happen and they discover a bunch of things. And it's a very moving movie and moving novella. It's a, it's a damn good motion picture. Show that again, Craig, because uh, you only showed it once at the Vista. Great print, by the way. Great print. I like now how your threshold for my failure is that I've only shown a movie once. I don't even get credit. <laughs> Credit that I showed it. Yeah, you, sh- you showed it on thirty five, but you should show it again. You only showed it once, man. You should sh- you should show it again. You should you should do more retries. Listen, if you're not showing, if you're not like a radio station showing the same things over and over, what are we doing? <laughs> <laughs> not an unpopular opinion. I think Stand by Me is is my favorite of that by far. Something that I love when I was young because it seemed like a, it's not horror, but it felt like when you hear that when you hear the plot of it as a kid, as a scared kid, it sounds like a horror thing. Like kids go to find a dead body sounds really scary. So it feels like that. So there's like a sense of tension to it. But it's something as a kid that I related to that I, I really enjoyed not to find in a dead body, but in terms of just this friendship and the, the, the way the friendships form and kind of the way you the way you grow. And then as a teenager more so, and it's one of those that every time I come back to it hits completely differently. Like it's a completely different movie the older you get. Now the end of the movie is like such a wild thing to like contend with. Like, uh, you know, you, you'll never have the friends you had like the ones when you were a kid, whatever the quote is that I'm butchering. There's something that just feels infinite about it that feels it's completely timeless, both a product of of the 80s, but also something that I'll be very curious to see if it ever ages out of a thing where people look back on it differently because it feels so like such a special. And then besides that, only because I've done so much Tom Hanks stuff, I think that The Green Mile is a weird one. How is that? I, I've never seen it. I think it's okay. Okay to find. Also Darabont. In the Frank Darabont style, it has some like really great performances, but kind of Green Mile particularly has this very odd thing where like everyone that works there is like kind of a very nice white guy. And it's like <laughs> in the 30s. And so it feels really weird to be like, this 
should be it has all of the makings of something very dark of that time period right like where's where's a working class angry racist character and instead it's just sam rockwell going nuts but it's like tom hanks being like the loveliest and like maybe that's the there's like a sentimentality to wanting like you know this good and trying to find the good in this sort of this horrible thing it feels a little weird it's such a weird thing because i think that especially michael clark duncan's performance is 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 very good and it's heartbreaking it's about like the lead up to the execution of a of a prisoner as it builds up to that is some of the most tense stuff that's like it feels like a horror movie it's very unsettling but it also has this weird other detail which is that michael clark duncan's character has this sort of fantastical power that's maybe healing people like physically and writers much much more knowledgeable than i have written about it well it's sort of a christian metaphor isn't it yeah to a degree but it's it's sort of like this black man in the middle of like all of these white people in charge bringing this healing thing and it's 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 very i'd be very curious to see sort of like the race ideas behind it because it feels so intentional and execution and not in a not in a necessarily negative way, but just in like to look back on it as is such a an interesting product of that. And I used to always get it. What's the um, Sam Mendes made a movie around the same time? I believe also with Tom Hanks. Road to Predation. Road to something. Road to Perdition. I used to think they were the same movies, and that I was losing my mind. And I've now learned that they're two very different movies. Tells wrong with you, Daniel. <laughs> I couldn't think of a lot of adaptations. Other words that I that I really like because yeah, the Dark Tower one is pretty much a failure. It has some like ingredients that are obviously good. I, I think Idris Elba as the gunslinger and Matthew McConaughey as the Man in Black aren't bad. Those are pretty good if you're gonna do like a big Hollywood adaptation. Last episode we talked about a James Bond idea that I think I'm gonna cut because I would actually want to make that movie. I actually don't really would want to actually be involved in making a Dark Tower series. I think adapting it is maybe maybe a fool's errand to a certain degree unless you just really have are really willing to like go peter jackson lord of the rings on it you know essentially push yourself to the edge of madness but i'll put it out there how i think they should adapt it if they ever do do it the core of it would be like three or four movies you adapt the first three books as two movies because the first book is kind of like a collection of short stories, essentially. And you take those stories and sort of weave them into the stories of two and three as sort of the setup. Your last movie is obviously the last couple books. The last two, you just kind of compress that. You don't need to make a Song of Susanna movie, I think. And then if you do an extra one, you do Wolves of the Kala or Kaya just because it's like it would be a fun seven samurai riff but it's also is more of a one-off i think if you do that you also should do like a salem's lot movie introduce father callahan i think during this time you do as kind of its own thing a wizard and glass adaptation as like a movie that's the one i would want to be involved with <laughs> get to me about that hollywood and then if you want to get real freaky with it you do like a the stand miniseries where you use the guy who plays um the man in black i think that would be the most biggest best way to do the dark tower which I essentially just pitched, like, what is that, six movies and a miniseries? So uh, it's a lot. But I think if you did it right and you got a couple of good directors, I think Mike Flanagan would be a, probably a good pick as, like, a like a general helmer. I think he's talked about how he has an idea for how to adapt it. Um, let him do it. It seems very ripe for a big multi-season expanded universe thing. Like, it's just got so much interesting storytelling and you could kind of stay really focused in a core thing and do, not that I'm pro spinoffs, but you have, there's materials there to do spinoffs of really interesting sort of subplots and stuff. Although I'm sure everyone intuits what we're talking about. It would probably a little setup helps. So King had wrote a series of seven books and then an eighth book, actually, and a short story that aren't part of the original seven called The Dark Tower. He started writing it in 1968 because he had seen The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And it blew, and I think he also had taken a little acid or something, and it had like blown his mind in college. It essentially was a synthesis of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly and The Lord of the Rings. And he wanted to write the longest pop culture novel Ever. He wanted to beat Tolkien, and I think he wanted to write a something like 10,000 page, 15,000 page pop culture opus. The first book was called uh, The Gunslinger. Second book was called The Drawing of the Three. Third book was called The Wastelands. Then there was actually a period of uh, time where a book didn't come out. Then Wizard of Glass came out. And then actually he got into his very famous accident and someone wrote him 
and said, please, can you tell me how the Dark Tower ends? Because I'm dying of terminal cancer. And King realized he didn't even know how it ended because that's not how he writes. And he banged out the last three novels really quickly. And he still to this day considers five, six and seven as rough drafts or first drafts. And he's willing to maybe one day go back and try to do a rewrite. But he doesn't know if he will. The only way I can describe The Dark Tower is it's this weird science fiction Western, alternate universe, dystopia, weird fantasy, epic opus. But at the same time, it references almost everything he's ever done. There are all these characters and other King novels suddenly come in and play a part, as Connor was saying. The most prominent, I think, being the Father Hallahan character from Salem's Lot is a major character in the later books. And Randall Flagg. It's implied, essentially, that the villain so to speak. I guess he's kind of like the Gollum or the Saruman of the series uh, is implied to be like a version or a reincarnation of the same kind of villain in The Stand. There are some other things. There's some book that I can't remember the title of it. And I'm not going to look it up because I don't care. But it has, I remember it has this like white and red thing on it. And that one like comes in later. And in one of the later books, I think in book seven, they come across a creature that's kind of implied to be the same type of psychic vampire that Pennywise is in it. And there's um, lots and lots and lots of little connections. I feel like culture is obsessed with um, connected universes and here's something that is built as one like could give you so much if that's what I'm, I'm kind of surprised it hasn't been looked into as this. It's not just a map of his own writing but it's a map of his own like pop culture obsessions too. But connective cohesively in a story that doesn't feel like winks it feels like important to what's propelling things forward and a character. For the most part it's a little weird in Wolves of the Kala when a bunch of Doctor Doom show up throwing golden snitches from Harry Potter. But I'll give the man he was he was he was recovering from an accident. It's also an, a fascinating work because it's it's a work that was a lifelong project. And actually, as you read it, the gunslinger, which he did go back and revise. Interestingly, there are two versions of the gunslinger. It is a much more dense and self-conscious style than by the time you get to the Dark Tower, book seven. It's very much a mature Stephen King style. And as you read it's funny because the books, when they came out in Stephen King's life, reflect sort of where he was and how he was writing at the time. There are two Stephen King books that I would love to adapt. I actually think The Stand has never been adapted correctly. They've tried to do it a few times, most recently with Whoopi Goldberg playing Mother Abigail, I think just a few years ago on CBS. It's not like any of those versions, everyone has been like, that was amazing. And so I think no one's ever been able to nail The Stand, probably for the same reasons. It's so epic. And now it would be, I don't even know how it would play post-COVID. Obviously, it's, it's about a super flu that wipes out 99% of uh, the Earth's population. I don't even know if people would want to watch it now. I don't know how you feel about this, but I think the stand you do is like a three-part, six-hour miniseries or something, like three weeks apart. It's like three two-hour movies. The book is composed of three big sections. The first section is the virus wiping out everybody. The second section is the survivors all sort of conglomerating and creating a society. And the third is the conflict between the societies. And stri you got to talk about striating into good and bad. Part two is sort of people who have kind of a good karma end up in one area and people who have kind of a bad karma. And it's funny, it's Boulder, Colorado and Las Vegas. <laughs> yeah, Vegas. <laughs> That's how I think a good, like you could do a good Santa adaptation. I guess you could do it as movies, but I almost feel like you would get more leeway if you did it as a TV miniseries, HBO. You would lose so much if you tried to do it as a three and a half hour movie. The material is so dark that it's not a natural trilogy kind of thing. Yeah, that's a great idea. And, and the other thing is Wizard and Glass. I think Wizard and Glass is one of the best things that he ever wrote. I think Wizard and Glass and The Stand are my two favorite kings. And Wizard and Glass, I think, could be a movie, a great movie. I think it works as a one big story. It'd be like a long movie probably, but it'd be one movie, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. So I just want to nod to the Dark Tower. It's something actually that's had a huge influence on me. And it's one of those rare things where it was an author's epic idea that also works, even though there are things that don't. I mean, you have to read the whole thing. As Connor said, if you were ever to take that on, you'd have to do a rewrite. And he does a very meta thing in the last three, which I actually like in the novel. 
how you would do that in a movie because he becomes a character. Stephen King becomes a character and like helps the characters <laughs> to get to the end, which becomes very, very meta. Also, people should read. I don't know. It'd be cool to make an adaptation of this as like a documentary. That's a cool idea. I'm just going to put out in the universe is do an adaptation of his on writing book, which is a great memoir slash sort of how to write how he writes book and then also i'll put this out into the world also make let me make an it mini series i know we've adapted it before but i know how that i would do that one and that one i would like to to make like a four part also like six hours i think king's really interesting too because i find people often shift his when they at when they adapt him they shift things around in ways that sometimes take advantage of the format it's going to that i think is sometimes really interesting and effective we talked about like the mist doing it for like like one of the most gut-wrenching final moments where like Kubrick's The Shining being so different. But I was thinking recently, I didn't love Dr. Sleep, the book. I thought it was really interesting more in like its subtleties than its actual like things. But then I loved Mike Flanagan's adaptation of it where he, rather than it being a direct adaptation of the book, he looped it back in. From a movie standpoint, he looped it back in to have Dr. Sleep sort of pick up pieces of the original Shining book to finish out the movie's version of this story that I thought was such a cool idea that he's adapting a book and the initial movie was sort of infamously hated by the original creator for the changes it made. So Flanagan was able to take some of the changes from the book to use in the new movie that I thought made it an interesting capper where I was worried that I was like, how do you follow up The Shining with the movie? That instead Flanagan was like, oh, actually gonna, I'm going to do something completely different that plays with a lot of the things that are set up, but uses that in really interesting ways. And I was very taken with that idea of like, oh, he adapted something specifically for the movie and was able to do things he wanted because of what the movie did differently than the original book. And I think that's such a cool concept. He's gotten a lot more magnanimous over the years in terms of criticizing adaptations of his stuff. I think I think maybe uh, getting off the drugs was part of it. He, I think he's also mellow, mellowed out about the, the Shining as well, I think. Have you ever heard his Stanley Kubrick phone call story? He said it's kind of fascinating insight into two creative geniuses. So Kubrick calls uh, Stephen King to get the rights to The Shining. He's like, hey, Stephen, this is Stanley Kubrick. I, I got a question for you. Stephen King was like, yes. He's like, you got to agree that any novel, any work of art that posits that there's an afterlife is ultimately a positive, optimistic novel. And Stephen King was like, well, what about hell? And Stanley Kubrick was, well, I don't believe in hell. And Stephen King was like, right. <laughs> and he's like, so you really haven't thought it all the way through. <laughs> and Kubrick was like really pissed off. <laughs> Which was, you know, Kubrick's an atheist. So hell is a, r a ridiculous concept to him. Stephen King is very famously someone who has uh, some spiritual faith. So it was an interesting conversation. Maybe that's why that adaptation too was going to be a conflict of worldviews from the beginning. Pop culture and final thoughts. I saw the new Bardo movie by Alejandro Inaritu. Uh, I hated it. It's too long. It's basically him doing Fellini and Malik. Uh, he should find his own uh, style instead of ripping off uh, Malik the most with a lot of uh, shots. Uh, after that, uh, I've been watching Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross for like the sixth time already. I rewatched that movie so many times already. It's so good. And then uh, I rewatched The Bodyguard for like the second time in over like a year. Uh, it's pretty good. It's a pretty good movie. Winnie Houston, she's got it, man. And Kevin Costner with that weird haircut uh, when he's trying to be like Steve McQueen. Uh, that's pretty good, too. I like to eat my pizza now, so uh, let's get a move on here. <laughs> I watched a movie called Stone Cold. No, it's not about famous wrestleman Steve Austin. It's a uh, early 90s action movie. It's an 80s action movie at heart about a man played by a football player who infiltrates a bike gang. It is completely absurd. It's really enjoyable and worth checking out. Have you, have you seen that, Craig? Oh uh, No, I, 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 when you and I were slacking about it, that's a movie that was always on the bubble for Secret Movie Club when it was just my friends, apartments, and beers. Everyone was like, we got to watch Stone Cold, and I need to see it. I've heard it's great. I heard it's a delight. It's a wild film. I knew Edwin would like it afterward. I texted him. I was like, the main villain doesn't blow up, but almost all of the secondary villains blow up. And Edwin just texted back like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> and Lance Hendrickson plays the main villain, and he is great. 
And, at, and you can find me at twitch.tv slash Connor Cruz. Watch me play D&D Tuesday evenings, twitch.tv slash NerdHala. One of my favorite movies from when I was a teenager that is seemingly impossible to find, I don't think an American release exists to my knowledge, is um, Joseph Mankiewicz's Sleuth with Laurence Olivier and Michael Caine. It's a great picture. I got to see it on the big screen for the first time, which was really cool. I wish it was accessible to, to own legally. And then I'm, I've been doing some, when I have some free time, some uh, noir vember and watching a bunch of stuff that I had never seen in the, in the noir world. The one that stood out to me so far was from 42, The Glass Key, which is an adaptation of, uh, I'm blanking on his first name, Hammett. Dashiell Hammett. Adaptations of his stuff are pretty mixed to bad, in my opinion. But I think this one kind of gets most of it right. And it has like this really aggressive sexual tension between two of the leads that I think rules. Between two of the, the male leads, to be clear. It's just like weird bully sexual tension and it's dope. Great movie. I just, another movie that I've, I caught up with recently uh, was Sean Baker's Red Rocket. Oh God. It's really good. Not only do I think is Sean Baker batting three for three or four for four, I haven't seen Starlet yet, which I weirdly, I heard that Starlet through Red Rocket is a bit of a tetralogy. I hear that things that he sets up in Starlet, he pays off in Red Rocket because Starlet is, is about the adult film industry in LA. And I guess characters then are referenced in Red Rocket. Also, interestingly, each of these movies, Starlet, Tangerine, The Florida Project, Red Rocket, deal with sex workers in one form or another. But the thing that I didn't hear too many people talking about that I thought he did really well, and maybe I'm wrong, I want you guys to tell me, was drawing the metaphorical comparison of Simon Rex's character to Donald Trump and what Rex is doing to all the people around him, which is essentially playing them and using them. Again, I'm going to get political, so <laughs> probably a lot of people are like, who were listening to this podcast until this moment were like, F this liberal. By the way, I'm not a liberal. I always have to say this. I'm not a liberal. I'm an independent. But I hate Donald Trump with a passion. By the way, big ups to everybody who's repudiating Donald Trump in 18 and 20 and 2022 in terms of I think most Americans are like, not for me, which I'm proud of. I am proud that most Americans are being like, nah, we're over it. We don't need that. Whatever your political stripes, Republican, Democrat or independent. Anyway, putting that to the side, what did you guys think? Like there was all that, like you would hear Trump in the background or you would hear him on the TV or you would see the posters and it was always Simon Rex. And here he was essentially exploiting everybody around him to give him what he wanted. And in the end, he didn't care about anybody. Ultimately, I mean, he was very charming. I think Sean Baker did a good job of not judging Rex too much. You understood who he was. I love that he showed up with nothing. And by the end of the movie, you know, he was like banking on. And I love the weirdness of the ending, too. I love Strawberry. I loved her character. And sort of like she seems to be playing him as much as he's playing her. I thought it was great. It's the first one of his movies I've actually seen. I, I watched it last year. It's been a minute, and so I should probably revisit it. But I loved it. I thought it was really, really really good, really funny. I don't really remember the Trump stuff too much, but I just I just remember, you know, because I'm not as typically into more straightforward comedy dramas, but there's like a combination of, of heart and a sort of acidity in that movie, I think, that appeals to me. There's an ugliness to a lot of the characters, and it's also just, it's just really funny. Baker's so talented at balancing. There's an honesty in his characters of people sometimes at their worst and that line between like liking them and feeling like empathy or pity that I think is so difficult to capture. And he does it so often with a lot of non-actors too. I mean, Simon Rex, not the case, but like the people that he surrounds with, it makes it feel real somehow in a way that I often find like uncomfortable intentionally. It's a, a weird gift he has as a director. His, his work with non-actors, I think is kind of astounding because when I hear that from anyone else, I'd be like, uh oh, like, oh, there's no money. But that is probably the case with their stuff. But he's like, well, how do I use that? And how do I make something effective out of it instead? And shout out to cool guy Chris Burgos, who came to our theater uh, a while back when we did our, our Sean Baker movies and signed a movie he didn't make for Edwin. I, what was it? Parenthood, I think? No, Edwin got Bria Vitante, star of Florida Project, to sign Parenthood. And she was like, OK. Then what did what did Burgos? Uh, Midnight Cowboy. Yeah. And I think I think he signed it. Uh, Hi, Edwin. I'm sorry I didn't write this, <laughs> which... Always makes me laugh. Yeah, I'm pretty happy about that. And I haven't seen, I know Criterion just released it, but his, I think it might've been his debut. It was co-directed, but Takeout from 2004, which I had never even heard of. I want to catch that too. I've heard, I've heard many great things. Yeah. He made two or three movies before Starlet. Yeah. Red Rockets, his seventh film. As Daniel and Connor are also saying, 
it's about this adult actor who has nothing. You, you don't know what's happened to him, but you can pretty much figure by the end of the movie what's happened to him. He's a user. And he just goes back to his home city of Texas City, immediately like somehow gets himself back into the house of his wife, who he never really divorced, but who you can tell he has ignored for years. And they were both from the film industry and had substance abuse issues. And then he just tries to get himself back on his feet to get back to L.A. But the way that he uses the people around him and the way that he is is fascinating it's just a fascinating movie uh, i highly recommend it i was really fascinated by it i was really surprised at the tone of the movie that's one of those movies where like i think in 10 15 years people are going to be like why the hell wasn't he like nominated for more stuff for that bleed performance because he just carries that film and he's like he's in every scene he's incredible in it as actually are the supporting characters i mean i thought the actor who, who played lexi the actor who played strawberry and the actor who played the neighbor that he just literally like almost literally throws under the bus yeah anyway there's so much to talk about uh, as always i want to thank our chief creative content officer connor lloyd cruz who edited this as we said uh we're heading into the the home stretch of 2022 tonight we are continuing with Ford. We're doing How Green Was My Valley and We Willy Winky. And then we're doing Cheyenne Autumn. And then we have Chad Hardigan tomorrow, who's doing his three movies, Martin Bonner, Morris from America, and Little Fish. And he'll be here doing Q&As for all of them. As always, you can go to secretmovieclub.com to see what we do. You can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. And Secret Movie Club Podcast 130 is going to be a brighter summer day. Edward Yang's A Brighter Summer Day. Ah, <laughs> a near four-hour movie that is a noir film about these gangs that fought in 1950s Taiwan and a real incident that happened in Edward Yang's youth. The real title of the movie, the Taiwanese title, translates as The Juvenile Murder Incident on Gulong Street. So that'll give you an idea. And we're talking about international noir. We're talking about how uh, different countries use noir to tell their stories. And we're anchoring that on Edward Yang's masterpiece of Brighter Summer Day, which is a fascinating film. And then uh, we only have a few more podcasts and then it's the New Year. So you should also side note that that screening is sold out, nearly sold out or sold out, which I think is so cool. Yeah. One of the biggest surprises of 2022 was sold out, Daniel. Sold out. We had to turn people away. I love That's amazing. We had like 105 people shoulder to shoulder in the theater watching Edward Yang's A Brighter Summer Day, which uh, I didn't see coming. I, I was just doing it because it, it's a great movie. I was like, hey, if we get 20 people i'll be elated and we ended up having a sold out crowd so there you go uh, all right guys have a great week i will see you next week uh i love you family Bye bye. for for that one i'm looking for for that one at all you know a weird fantasy i have is uh non-sexual by the way so don't worry uh is <laughs> is that years from now for whatever reason i don't want this to be but years from now we've all drifted apart or whatever edwin is in middle age and he's walking on like a windy day a windy autumnal day and he stops and he thinks about us and he was like those were really good guys and then like a tear <laughs> A tear kind of uh, pulls at his eye. And that's the moment that he realizes decades later, sort of what we brought to his life. I like that. Yeah. It's kind of beautiful. And then he keeps walking. <laughs> it's a moment. <laughs> 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 <laughs>